Contents of the lab report meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, the one, the only, the Dr. Philomenotrandade. Way to bring that strange announcing energy, Michael. I always wanted to be an NBA announcer. <laughs> you can tell. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. I'm not getting along with my community college teacher. <laughs> Off on the wrong foot, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Michael, you can be abrasive. You don't even know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how I do that. Hello. Hi, I'm Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing so good, Patty Devers. How are you doing? I'm not quite as polarizing as you are, apparently. I don't. Look. Seriously. I'm just a simple person. Right. Easy go lucky. <laughs> And somehow, yeah, I'll say this, even in, even in high school. So being quiet, being quiet oriented and introverted, right? I think people tend to want to read things into that. That's actually true because I do that with you all the time. And I continually say I'm a bad guesser. I'm, I'm having a hard time. It's here. a it's a vessel for projection. It is. Seriously. Anyway, uh, so this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report. It is brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, and it's where we talk about some cool stuff like functional mm -hmm. medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, precision medicine, functional lab testing, wow. precision specialty inter wow. therapeutics. Wow. And if you are interested in any of the litany of things that Michael just spit out of One his of mouth, those things you got to be interested in. I guess. In. Um, hopefully you would have gone to iTunes or Spotify, perhaps subscribed and follow this little show, maybe mm. rate, review, share it with your friends, download it, leave us a written review on iTunes or Spotify. Can Great. you subscribe and follow at the same time? Well, it is actually that doable, says follow. Or does follow. that break the space-time continuum? Just follow. But I, I just hate that they changed it from subscribe to follow. It's just people don't know that. Do we still follow on YouTube or do we subscribe we on subscribe YouTube? We subscribe on YouTube. Okay. See what I mean? Trendsetter. I guess. Well, if you have any feedback and... Uh, subscribing following rating and reviewing is not enough for you you can certainly send additional feedback to podcast at gdx.net you can also send if you want to record a disclaimer right i've had some luck with that mm -hmm. it's a fun time you just <laughs> if you want to know what to say it's at the beginning you can hit the re rewind button just move that little scrolly thing all the <laughs> way back to the beginning redo that and send it to us just just send us your audio file you don't even have to tell us who you are just send it and this is where we have our ad reads, right? We've got three sponsors today. What? Um, no. No, we don't. That reminds me of the time you said, phone lines are now open. And I was like, what? <laughs> We're taking calls. What? Taking live calls. What could go wrong there, right? If we were to oh, actually man. take live calls. Actually, that would probably be really fun. I think it would be. I always saw this maybe as being a little bit of like the car talk for yeah. integrative medicine. <laughs> you know what I mean? People call in. You're that like, so cool. I don't know. But the flip side is, what if nobody called and we're just sitting here waiting for a call? That would be depressing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I don't know if I could handle that kind of rejection. <laughs> I know I couldn't. Um, what are we talking about? Well, speaking of calls, <laughs> today we have Dr. Philomena Trindati on the show. And She's the best. The best part about having Philomena on the show is that it's usually born of us calling her for some other reason, like advice about some clinical something, which is kind of what happened here. Or just life advice. Yeah. Like, Michael, you just called her and 
and we're like chatting about something else clinical and we're like hey let's talk about this on the podcast she's the best i love her so much me too um and it's always a joy when we have her on we tend to meander a little bit where we <laughs> we giggle a lot yeah we're old friends so it's, it yeah. tends to be a little bit different so anyway um without further ado let's just uh, get to it shall we michael chapman yes i am so glad to have our one of our best oh, friends back man. one of our bffs this is the best i know this right is the best. well we're so happy Philomena Trindade is back. And for those of you who may live under a rock and do not know who Dr. Philomena Trindade <laughs> is, mm-hmm. let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Philomena Trindade is a teacher, author, and internationally sought after lecturer in functional medicine. She is faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine and in the fellowship program at Metabolic Medicine at Metabolic Medical Institute. After obtaining a BA degree in biology, she went on to obtain a master's degree in public health before starting medical school. She graduated first in her class in family practice from the University of California Davis School of Medicine and completed residency in family practice at UC San Francisco Santa Rosa program. Hmm. Dr. Trindati has been in clinical practice for over 25 years, which means she started when she was like 10, which is crazy, right? That's right. (laughs) She's been published in several journals, magazines, and textbooks. Her current practice, Sadede Wellness, offers mentorships to other practitioners as well as health retreats in the Azores, her homeland. And Mm. with that, welcome to the show again, Philomena. Thank you so much. And you know, you guys have to come to one of my retreats one I of want these days. so bad <laughs> i want to see the azores it we looks so beautiful the there i know i know, I know. <laughs> yeah it's a little too late for this one even though it's on gut it's gonna oh. be september 9th to the 13th next year but i can always do one just for you guys i've got to yes. get the passports updated for the oh, kids and then we're there yeah 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 um and, and that that goes to this other question i mean since <laughs> you're an international functional medicine superhero i was just wondering do you have to wear a disguise when you're jet setting around the world or how does that work <laughs> You guys are too kind. <laughs> I, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was telling Philomena that because we know her so well. Whenever we go, like we go out to dinner with Philomena, and mm-hmm. we just chat with her. But then you go to like a functional medicine arena or an auditorium, and throngs of people are just mobbing this woman. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's just. Oh, I feel. I mean, I, I feel delighted and just honored to even have dinner and whatnot. I, I don't even understand why I get to be in this world. But I know. Me too. Guys. Me too. But because we know you are an expert in so many things, and oftentimes we talk to you a little bit about hormones because we know you're a hormone yeah. guru, we noticed that you've been doing a bit of research and speaking recently on the relevance and manifestations of cardiovascular disease in women specifically. So talk a little bit about the state of evidence in that research around women's health and cardiovascular disease. That's a great question, Patty, and especially because most studies are done in men, mm-hmm. and particularly uh, in the perimenopause period. You know, we don't have a lot of studies in women, but we know that our risk really goes up in the perimenopausal period, especially after, or I should say, at menopause, when the estrogen levels drop. But really, when you have a hormone imbalance, and there's not a lot of literature um, around that that's looking specifically at women, mm-hmm. but yet. You know, we die first and foremost of heart disease. Mm-hmm. But when you ask women, like I often ask my patients that, they think they die of breast cancer. Sure. Yeah. Like, no, it's cardiovascular disease, heart disease. And we present very atypically. I had, I had a patient who presented, she had one spot on her back, like the mid of her back, that she just had a pain there that wouldn't go away. Mm. It's, it's always my, 
more typical of like a pancreatitis type pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, her son happens to be a doctor, went to the same residency I did. And so he's like, no, you got to go see her. And sure enough, and she was having an MI. Mm. So we don't have that crushing chest pain, you know, that goes down your arm and you get short of breath. You know, sometimes women just don't feel quite themselves or have a pressure on their chest, right? Or they can be also short of breath. They, but we we seldomly have the same sort of classic symptoms. The other part of the story is that, so in the perimenopause, in the menopausal period, our risks go up and I feel like many times women go into the emergency room with these complaints and it's passed off as supercentorial or mm-hmm. you know stress induced mm-hmm. and they're not really researched like this could be you know an evolving MI for instance whereas if it was a man that would happen mm-hmm. automatically but the other thing I'm really concerned about is our younger women particularly women with PCOS or other hormonal disorders where they have also an increased risk. That's sort of my newer area of really looking at this um, sort of evolving issue because we know since 1994, I think that's the first study that I really saw that looked at like adverse um, lipid profiles and they were looking at expanded lipids in women with PCOS or women with um, endometriosis, for instance. Mm because they have hormonal disorders. In many cases, like with PCOS, they may have elevated androgens. may not always be testosterone, but it could be the other androgens, Mm -hmm. which can make them insulin resistant, which increases their risk. But they can also have adverse um, lipid profiles and are very inflamed Mm -hmm. that can affect the cardiovascular system. And that's not sort of been a big focus. I find that in many cases, when I order expanded lipids, for instance, on some of these women, I get a letter from an insurance company saying, oh, yeah. you know, why are you doing this at the women at this age? And mm-hmm. It's like we have to fight for it. And um, it's number one, it's too bad. But number two, that means we have to really educate, you know, our patients yeah. and not just in the perimenopause, which is extremely important, but also our younger women that are at higher risk. Yeah. And look at that. Uh, and recently I had a, a patient of mine that just comes to mind who had, you know, a cardiac calcium score. And um, she was really concerned because it wasn't completely normal, but it wasn't completely abnormal. And the fact is we don't have a lot of studies in women. And how do we interpret it in women? So I feel like we've made a lot of um, developments and we have lots of research, but not necessarily in women. And that area really needs to grow and expand. But for now, I think we just need to be highly suspicious of women that have you know, complaints and whether it's anxiety or they are all of a sudden a little more anxious mm-hmm. or they have shifts in their blood pressure or they have sort of a pressure on their chest or they feel like there's something off but you don't quite know what it is to always, always consider cardiac first and foremost. Yeah. Agree. That's <clears throat> so fascinating. I have a couple questions that, I mean, you went down a couple paths that I, I'd like to think about a little bit. The first one is... Um, what type of atypical results do you see with your lipid panels? Like, is there difference in particle numbers or, or is there a biomarker that you tend to see more related to hormone dysregulation in women? Well, if we're looking, uh, first and foremost, I see more hormonal dysregulation in insulin. 
okay. in general. And mm-hmm. they may not be pre-diabetic. They may not even be empirical tolerant. They may be insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. But it's really all about the insulin, which means their hemoglobin A1C can be normal. Their fasting glucose can be normal. Not always, right? Their hemoglobin A1C can be 5.4, 5.5, right? Just small changes, mm-hmm. even 6, even 5.6. But uh, it may be completely normal. And I think those women are sort of written off. Or they're not insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. Or they look at HOMA. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, the home is normal. Yes, the home can be normal, but home is based on fasting insulin and fasting glucose. Right. And in many of these women, it's their postprandial insulin mm-hmm. that can be really high early on. Eventually, their fasting insulin will be high. And, you know, I'm using, you know, I'd like to see fasting insulin at five. But I feel like those are sort of being lost through the cracks. And many of these are younger women are women with PCOS or these hormonal um, imbalances. But aside, looking specifically at like an expanded lipid panel, which is what I do, and I do in all patients, uh, you tend to see an elevated lipid part, LDL, lipid particle number. Right. And you can see a lower HDL, but it's really the LDL that's the biggest factor, so I should say the biggest risk factor. You tend to see uh, more of the B-type pattern than an A. But first and foremost, I'd say it's the lipid particle number. And um, secondly, you you know how you were always taught that if you see elevated, at least I was taught that if we see elevated triglycerides, right, really think of, especially in women, that's a big risk factor. And where does it come from? And usually it's insulin resistance. Sure, right. And we tend to see that quite a bit in the perimenopausal period, but it sort of gets disregarded or not really looked at as, hey, this could be somewhat of an independent risk factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, we be looking. that makes sense from a mechanism perspective. As, like the triglyceride HDL ratio, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. going to be predictive of that insulin resistance pattern, and that's where the endothelial yeah. dysfunction is originating. So, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other question I had is, do you have any theories on why such a difference in physical presentation for, you know, an MI between males and females? Is it just that males have a super low pain tolerance as compared to females <laughs> and they think everything's falling apart and their, their chest is caving in? Or what is the difference? Do you have any thoughts? Well, I sort of have my own thoughts, but nothing that I can conclusively say, <laughs> well, I've read and there's, you know, studies pointing this out in a sense yeah i think women are multitaskers and number one i think there may have to do with sort of some of our innervation of our cranial nerves in particular the vagus nerve Hmm. um there's been you know sort of there's actually one study that i looked at that alluded to that the truth is that um nobody really knows i mean women tend to discount things more Hmm. in terms we have a higher pain threshold than i think partly because you know, we're able to bear children, you know, we have a little different makeup. But I think that there has to be something else that we haven't quite um, figured out yet. But in, in general, I'm wondering, this is sort of my, I'm wondering if it has something to do with our neurotransmitters, hmm. you know, and the fact that men tend to be a little bit more dopamine dominant, not that some women aren't. But, you know, in general, women tend to be more GABA or acetylcholine oh, dominant. Interesting. Uh, and not across the board, right? But in general, mm. I feel like, and that may have to do with hormones, with the fact that men have, you know, the dominant is hormone is testosterone. Not that women don't make it. We make it and we make it in large amounts too. But 
we make different hormones throughout the month, or I should say levels of different hormones throughout the month. And that can change your pain threshold or how you present too. Yeah. So I think it's multifactorial, to tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. great. And I want to echo that because, like, you know, I spent decades in the hospital. And, you know, we're taught in medical school all these symptoms. Whatever a woman came in, it was like, all bets are off. All bets are off. R- toothache. There it is, right? But with that, when you were talking about the PCOS patients and their higher androgens and that being a risk factor, are there things that seem to be more or less atherogenic in women compared to men? Or is it just that testosterone in, in PCOS? Are there other things in women that are more atherogenic? No, no. Um, I think that there's a lot of factors, first of all, that we can look at to look at inflammation in general, mm-hmm. right? Both men and women, but especially um, in women mm-hmm. that have been around for a while, but haven't been applied to clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and that's sort of in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like we totally underutilize LPPLE2, mm-hmm. right? Or plaque, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, mar- a marker, a microvascular plaque. I take that really seriously. But yet, every time I order it, you know, from a conventional lab, there's a little heading, or I should say a little note to say, this is investigational. Mm-hmm. Well, how long is it going to be investigational? <laughs> it's been around forever. We have lots of studies on it. And uh, yet, you know, it's still there. Mm. We don't see that with high sensitivity CRP. Mm-hmm. And that one is pretty well known, and most doctors order it. There's still some debates about homocysteine, for instance, and what's going on with the B vitamins and the fact that some people are poor methylators and they need higher amounts you know, of B vitamins, or, or even the fact that you can have single nucleotide polymorphisms that really affect your ability to methylate. Mm-hmm. And with catechol methyltransferase, for instance, it's not just our ability to make certain neurotransmitters, but it's also our ability to break down our hormones mm-hmm and our catecholamines. So there seems to be a link, and um, there isn't separate studies in women, they've sort of been grouped, but there's a link to people with a single nucleotide polymorphism and COMT, well, catecholamine methotransferase, where it's downregulated, so they're not able to break down the catecholamines, so they tend to have higher levels of epinephrine, noradrenaline, noradrenaline, and in turn, they're more anxious, they have more pain, lower pain sensitivity, or I should say, uh, more pain sensitivity, lower mm. pain threshold. Mm. And I think that probably has something to do with see these single nucleotide polymorphisms. And I feel like that's an area that's still evolving, especially the whole metabol- metabolomic piece. Mm-hmm. But um, there's enough for me to say this is important and I really need to look at this. As well, some of the, you know, some of the, um, I was gonna say newer markers, but they're not that new. They've been around. Like it's, it's, I still find that we're not really looking at nuclear factor kappa beta, but you're able to order it, mm-hmm. right? Or fibrinogen, or you know, or many of these um, single nucleotide polymorphisms. Some yeah. of the ones that you know you guys have the panels for. I feel like the technology is there, but I have to say, when I talk to my more conventional or traditional colleagues hmm. yeah. they're like their mind goes blank like they have yeah. no nice. idea they're they're not even doing expanded lipid panels in many cases yeah which is a little bit sad yeah. Yeah. yeah well okay so you took you went down the comt pathway it got my brain afire so i'm gonna Uh-oh. i'm gonna nerd out here for Look a second out. because you're talking about you know down regulation 
bringing that back to what you were talking about with perimenopause and menopause, increasing cardiovascular disease risk with lower estrogens, what about the idea of an upregulation of COMT? Because we know the most common in most populations form is heterozygous, meaning one polymorphism, not both. So it's thought that if you have a mutation in both, then that's an upregulation. It might actually be working faster to break down estrogen. Any any thoughts around that <laughs> hypothesis? I, you know, from what I've seen and everything that I've read, it, it tends to be more the single nucleotide polymorphism is actually a down regulation mm -hmm. where you have less methylation and you're not able to process your estrogen in phase two, right? So especially if you have an upregulated phase one, mm -hmm. right? So if you have an upregulated phase one and you're utilizing the four, because we can utilize the two, the four, yeah. the 16, and you're utilizing the four, then you have more reactive intermediates that can lead to DNA addict formation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that have to be quenched either with methylation or glutathione conjugation or both. I feel like glutathione sometimes is sort of the backup system. Um, but I feel like with respect to estrogen metabolism, I see more of a down regulation. So mm -hmm. up regulation in phase one, down regulation in phase two, where you're really not able to process it. And then they'll have, you know, gut abnormalities mm -hmm. or gut problems so that you your the gut microbiotic can't sort of aid because it too is involved in estrogen metabolism. I consider that sort of our phase three. Mm -hmm. Up regulation, I still would like to see a little bit more research and see. Yeah, because that I look at more, well, are there inducers? Are there things that could be inducing that enzyme? Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily a polymorphism. Yeah. Right? Because we, we can have sort of inducers or inhibitors. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But in terms of estrogen metabolism, I mostly have seen it or I've read, what I've read is more of its decreased so decrease in function, whether yeah. it's homozygous or heterozygous. Good. And that... That, that we could go down a whole different pathway <laughs> oh, in no. terms of that and, and, and risk, disease risk, yeah. especially um, looking at a woman's or a man's risk for cancers, hormone-related cancers. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like the literature is there and it's not really being applied clinically. Yeah, absolutely. And you tie that together with what you're talking about with the you know, beta-glucuronidase in the gut is just compounding that poor uh, detoxification of hormones. Yeah, exactly. Were you, were you going further down the COMT pathway? I saw you scribbling frantically over there, Michael. <laughs> I have so many <laughs> I feel questions. like I need to hold his ankles and pull him out of the rabbit hole. <laughs> no, no. I'm good there. The only other thing was I did, I, I, thinking back to the increase in cardiovascular disease risk around perimenopause and menopause and its associations with lower estrogen levels, um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit to the mechanism of uh, why that occurs or, or how estrogen is related because I think a lot of people don't understand how many different roles estrogen plays um, and so I was just wondering if you could talk about its role in uh, cardiovascular health in general yeah I, well the way I explained it to my patients because I pretty much like keeping things simple um, is that really estrogen is sort of an antioxidant Senatoxin, if you're thinking of your um, neurons, right, for the brain, that's why your risk of uh, dementia increases. But it's also really important in that endothelium and keeping that endothelium layer healthy and sort of the whole microcalyx and that whole function. And I feel that um, 
there's a lot of relations that are sort of relationships or um, that haven't necessarily been looked at. And I just sort of see a little bit of literature linking that because we always talk about leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky endothelium, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if part of that also isn't the effect of estrogen on the gut microbiome and that one cell layer thick right and the whole mucin layer there's not a lot of literature that i could find yet Mm -hmm. along that but i think that it may have a lot to do with what's happening at the level of the endothelium you know in your blood vessels with what's going on at the level of the gut and the fact that estrogen is important in that and sort of how healthy is that um, endothelial layer that's great. And you know what? That makes me think in menopause with the declining estrogen progesterone, the unopposed cortisol and its effect on leaky gut and what might be happening there. And on the heels of that, I'm thinking about like more and more people are becoming aware of the importance of metabolic health. And you're one of these OG type people who have been <laughs> preaching about metabolic health since through most of your career for mm-hmm. decades. And so even though there's a lot of attention being paid here to metabolic health, are there things about metabolic health that people are still missing the boat on? To me, um, I feel like um, people, uh, let's just talk about hormones for a minute, mm-hmm. because I feel like that's sort of the where we do the biggest disservice to women. I see more and more sort of my colleagues that are learning about um, functional medicine, regenerative medicine, uh, precision medicine, whatever you want to call it. Although functional medicine is a little different because it has its own rules. We have a matrix. You know, it's, it's a little bit, I think the word is, is sort of thrown out, but people don't always understand the principles. Mm-hmm. But in any case, personalized medicine, let's say. Um, and they're looking at an end sort of of the pathway hormone and not necessarily looking upstream. So... They may uh, put some woman, for example, on estrogen, progesterone, and they may even consider testosterone, which I feel like is really important. It's the forgotten hormone in Mm -hmm. women. But they forget that upstream of that is the thyroid, and upstream of that is the adrenals, and upstream of that is insulin. Mm -hmm. And insulin is a master player with major downstream effects. And although it goes both ways, right, it's bidirectional, there's more downstream effects. And from insulin, for for instance, because I consider insulin sort of the upstream hormone. And then we look at adrenals and thyroid and then the sex hormones. And then how are those sex hormones sort of being uh, broken down? But again, not to sort of drag the issue any further, but I I feel like the biggest um, problems I see is not seeing that hormones are really a symphony Mm -hmm. and that we need to look at how they're working together. And if you look at some of the studies on women and increased cardiovascular disease, um, there's a big, there for, for a long time, there was an issue, or there was quite a few studies, um, and then there, the issue was trying to figure out why, that women ha- that have persistent menopausal symptoms, even if they're on hormone replacement therapy, they have higher cardiovascular risk. Hmm. And so they looked at, could this be due to cortisol? Well, yeah, in some of the cases, possibly, and others not. When they really looked at the studies further, actually, they, they started looking at studies throughout different patient populations. So they looked at the Korean population, the Chinese population, the U.S. They realized that, and those women had one thing in common, is that they were insulin resistant. Hmm. 
And so that even though you may have been giving them uh, hormone replacement therapy, their symptoms weren't totally controlled. They persisted. And it was because insulin was a major issue. They were insulin resistant. And so they started looking at insulin actually being sort of an independent risk factor Mm. for cardiovascular disease because we have enough of those studies. So what I see is that we're not necessarily connecting the dots and really looking at all the different hormones and how are they working together in this sort of hormonal symphony, as I'd like to call it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's a big gap there. Yeah. Well, what about the unopposed cortisol contributing to the insulin resistance? To your point, it all sort of feeds together in one big symphony, so I guess that can contribute as well. No, it absolutely can contribute as well. Um, No, my point was that insulin tends to be a major hormone and hyperinsulinemia can cause hypercortisolemia. I gotcha, right. yeah. Right. But, but cortisol, we know, is the only hormone that goes up with age. We become more catabolic. We, we become more sarcopenic as we age because mm. we're more catabolic. Mm. And I think that's also extremely important to really be looking at what is happening sort of with our androgens and especially like our DHEA and cortisol. Because as we age, even independent of insulin, Right, which insulin resistance will make that much worse, but it's a two-way street, as mm. I mentioned. So high cortisol can also lead to insulin resistance, mm. and high mm. insulin can lead to elevated cortisol mm-hmm. levels. Yeah. So we sort of have to look at the whole symphony and how it operates. And even though I think insulin is a major hormone in that it has a little it has more downstream effects, the reverse is true, right? Mm. Changes in thyroid and adrenal can also affect your insulin sure. levels. So it's you have to look. It's a two-way street. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah I makes, just think that we're not looking enough at those interactions. Right. Agree. It makes me think, too, of, you know, we tend to, especially in the conventional world, we think of insulin resistance and prediabetes, diabetes as having a certain body type. But, you know, you've talked a lot about, you know, the skinny fat individuals who are also insulin resistant with the visceral mm-hmm. adiposity that's, that they have. So when you think about that group of people, are there markers for metabolic dysfunction that are more relevant to people maybe of the, the, the skinny fat type as compared to the more traditionally overweight individuals? Well, uh, the thing that too about the skinny fat person, um, let's just take PCOS as a as sort of an example because we used to think of PCOS as the woman who was definitely more android, right? Carried more weight around her belly. But now we're seeing more and more in women that are normal weight, normal body shape, mm-hmm. and sometimes may not even have increased visceral adiposity because they can be insulin resistant at a certain tissue, mm-hmm. right? We've seen that in women who, who can't prove that their total body um, insulin resistant, especially on those who are infertile, they're having fertility issues, mm-hmm. and they found, so they'll be put on metformin, and all of a sudden, their fertility gets better because they were insulin, they can be insulin resistant at a certain tissue level, you know, whether it's the ovary or you name it, uh, and they may not be total body it's really insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it has, that is important and also to consider. And the fact that you may be, uh, since, you know, we know there are insulin receptors everywhere. And I, I mean, even with looking at diabetes type 3, right, mm-hmm. or the effect of insulin on the brain. But so because of that, I think we need to look at earlier and earlier markers as much as we can. So adiponectin is one that I look a lot at. Uh, also looking at vitamin deficiencies, whether it's vitamin D, the B vitamins, you name it, because those can contribute. And um, I use proinsulin quite a bit 
because I find that we can have pancreatic beta cell dysfunction and yet you may be able to maintain your fasting glucose and your fasting insulin levels normal. But if you're not checking it postprandial, you may not know that, but you might see it with a proinsulin. And it's been around for a while. I mean, I remember when I see peptides been around for a long, long time, but I remember when adiponectin and proinsulin sort of had, uh, it kind of sort of got shoved in the market and that, mm -hmm. hey, this is important because mm -hmm. there are stages that you can then stage you know, the amount or the degree of pancreatic beta cell dysfunction. So I use that those quite a bit. But homocysteine is another that I had already mentioned. And it's looking at inflammation in general. Are they inflamed? Is there an autoimmune process? Because you can have antibodies and not necessarily have an autoimmune disease, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We know that it takes yep. 15, maybe even up to 20 years, let's say, to develop antibodies to the thyroid before you may even see actual changes in thyroid function. So I think those are um, also extremely important to look at. And um, as many, you know, we've had quite a few new um, inflammatory markers that become available. Then I, I understand that not everybody's is looking at them and necessarily putting it into practice. But I think it's important because the more that we can identify that someone is inflamed, we can then try and find that root cause. You know, is it insulin resistance? Is it an infection? Is it an inflammation? Is it a reactivated infection or an occult one, for instance? Mm -hmm. You know, we can try to look for um, that root cause. And just um, recently, I was looking, I was reading up a little bit on fibrinogen and the fact that, and ferritin, that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily always really looked at but fibrinogen, for instance, if yeah. you're inflamed, the level's going to go up. Ferritin mm -hmm. yeah. will go up too. Mm -hmm. But I see more lower levels of, of ferritin. Uh, but still, yeah. it's the, some of these are common markers that we've had, and they're not all necessarily these newer markers mm -hmm. like PA1, for instance. But yet, I just don't think they're being full, fully utilized or that we're looking at them and how much can they contribute you know, to the care of a patient versus just looking at a CBC and a comprehensive metabolic panel. One of the newer ones that is not new, but it's sort of been on the news is uric acid. Yep. Right. And the yep. fact that, you know, for women, uric acid should not be higher than 4.8. And for men, it should not be higher than 5.2. And if you don't want to remember those, you can think of five, but any value above five, it is really significant, especially if you're developing insulin resistance. And a major contributor to elevated levels of uric acid is the amount of high fructose corn syrup that you find in our mm. foods, particularly you know prepackaged foods. Mm. So it's really an older marker, but it's looking at it through different eyes and not just looking at laboratory reference ranges. But what does the literature say? Yeah, I, yeah. is is abnormal and. And what does it tell us? It makes you think a lot of, about a lot of our conventional markers, you know, even going to like our, our metabolic panels, you know, what else do those markers have? What mm -hmm. other stories are they wanting to tell us that we've just been looking yeah. through them with one lens? So fresh eyes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think another point to, to ask here is that in your practice, in your clinical practice, do you rely solely on these biomarkers and these serum markers or do you actually do things like scanning like do you do body impedance are you going to look for visceral fat do you take it a step further or do you rely on biomarkers no, i do a little bit of everything because i'm big on physical exam mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i'm constantly learning my physical exam skills are what's constantly that physical exam <laughs> 
I never learned that. Remember those? <laughs> I know, and I, I still carry around the tape measure, you know? <laughs> nice. And I look at, at waist to hip ratios, mm -hmm. and you know how nice. they increase. They become, because another thing that happens to women is we become more android in mm -hmm. the perimenopause. Why? Because fat is metabolically active and it can make hormones. And it's like that, you know, extra 10 pounds. That's why. So if you are hormonally sound, that won't happen. But women have been told that, oh, no, it's just going to happen. You know, get over it. Just mm -hmm. sort of get used to it. Uh, but I and I do buy repeats as well. Um, and uh, but I look at their mouth and. You know, what's their B vitamin status? Because you can look at on the tongue. And I can't remember it all, but I remember a few and then I look up the rest. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Then their skin, you know, has it changed? What is it like? Is it sort of sagging? How many, especially in women, how many lines are they, are they getting around their mouth? High correlation with testosterone levels, for mm. instance. And they're just muscle mass. How many times are they working out? And are they building muscle? Are they building a good amount of muscle? Because there you really have to look at sort of all the androgens and how important DHEA is in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. And then we, if you look at DHEA, we have all the studies from the blue zones that I feel like are never really mentioned. But they've shown that those five parts of the world that had the highest amount of centenarians, many of them had gone through famine, through war, you name it. They all maintain their DHEA levels. And I think mm. that's why there was longevity. I think it has a lot to do with it. Mm. Granted, they had seven other factors that they did. Like, you know, they believe in a power higher than themselves. They contribute to their community. They had friends. They had community. Right? Mm -hmm. They got together. Mm -hmm. They shared. Mm -hmm. They took naps. You know. <laughs> yeah. They. Yeah. But I still, thought it was because they I, all I, ate I quinoa. Like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, no, it wasn't that. Okay, and, I'm gonna ask. And the, <laughs> and the purple sweet potato. That's right. right. That's, <laughs> the, that's the one. That's the one. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna ask an unfair question, knowing that it's always both to these types of oh, questions. Gosh. But there tends to be this debate on if I wanted to turn around my metabolic health quickly or, or what have you, should I focus more on putting on muscle or uh, lowering my my average glucose, meaning reduce my carbs intake. Well, I think if you do one, you will do the other. But if you were to ask me, well, if we look at all the studies, for example, on the Mediterranean diet, uh, and let's do that. Let's just leave the ketosis part out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at what is better for insulin resistance in general, and I feel like the the biggest contribution to the obesity epidemic is insulin resistance. You know, which hasn't been looked at. We've been, we've been told sort of the opposite yeah. is true, right? Mm -hmm. And then you still have to go further and say why. You know, is it because of the the food and as well as the toxins and their nutrient needs, right? There's there's you have to still look further for the root cause of root causes because in many cases there's there's more than one. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if you are lowering your carbs and you're doing some lifestyle modification. You know, you're increasing the amount of movement that you do with your body. You're increasing lymphatic movement. And you are working sort of on what do you need to relax and regenerate, right? And practice gratitude and mindfulness. Um, I mean, we have to look no further than the diabetes prevention trial, right? Which was stopped early. Mm -hmm. And how what a big difference there was between the lifestyle modification and the group that received metformin. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that study was classic. It's just too bad that 
it was stopped at the halfway point and you know wasn't continued but in any case if you just look at that i feel like food is essential and what we put in our mouths and what we think when we put in our mouths and sort of knowledge knowing that when we're eating a certain type of food it's going to speak to our dna it's going to lower inflammation increases that effect so in general i would say for me we it would be diet and lowering your carbs because you can i find it's hard to put on muscle mass for instance especially for women if you don't in the perimenopausal period if you don't lower their carbs mm-hmm. um i mean i'm sure that in men it might be a little different especially younger men they could probably work out a little more increase their protein and they would build muscle mass mm-hmm. but for women in general and in the perimenopausal period or women with hormonal imbalances i i think it's really looking at the insulin resistance and their carbs and changing their diet and decreasing their carbs and making sure that they're eating healthy fats good amount of protein but lots and lots of uh, plant-based and different colors and making sure that we're sort of eating like the rainbow and we're getting all those phytonutrients i think it's huge perfect well, yeah, there you go, Michael. You didn't get both, and you didn't get a depends. But we still you, got personalized, you get, right? You get, you get Philomena's opinion. And that being said, what what a lot of people in our space know you for is your fantastic mentorship and how much you help some of these new clinicians coming out of IFM or A4M and, and, and really using this in practice. So can you talk about some of your, your mentorship programs and, and what's your approach when it comes to helping these new functional medicine clinicians? You know, what I see a lot of is people that um, go to A4M or IFM, and let's just take IFM for instance, mm-hmm. they learn sort of these new tools and the fact that they have more tools in their toolbox mm-hmm. and that, you know, you can use a matrix to try and get to sort of the root cause and fix it um, and, you know, stop sort of disease progression. But I see this fear of implementation. Mm-hmm. Yeah fear of being different from our colleagues on the street Mm -hmm. and then being reported to the medical board and then having issues Mm -hmm. uh, with that and and sort of just the fear that that could happen. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things I've been doing with my mentees is really helping them where are they at in their knowledge and how can I help them implement it right away? Because it's really all about good medicine. Mm -hmm. And if we could just focus on practicing good medicine, we can even lose the labels. It's just, what do I need to do for this patient that will help them be the most successful? We can just focus on that. It it doesn't, as long as it's science-based, and of course everything we're doing is Mm science-based, then I think we can go a lot further. But I feel like I was really lucky because when I started doing the fellowship, and at the time the fellowship was Half at pretty much half at A4M and half at IFM, right? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. combined. Right. Yeah. I feel like I was really lucky because I was already in private practice and I was looking. I mean, I had just opened up my own practice and I'm like, I really need to take this further. It's pouring here now, so I hope you can't, if it's not going to be too noisy here. <laughs> I've, so I've got a storm button actually. I, was... I can make it actually sound like it's raining here too, but go ahead. <laughs> So I was hungry for knowledge and I was desperate for a tool or tools that I could apply. So I was working part I was working full time actually I was part time still at the nonprofit, part time on my own and taking the fellowship and I spread it out over two years because I wanted to implement as I went along. 
Yeah. And that was perfect. It was perfect for me because as soon as I learned something, lo and behold, the universe would send me two or three patients yeah. without problem. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, oh my goodness, here's my chance to mm-hmm. do this. I remember to this day, and I'll never forget it, a lecture by Patrick Hanaway about ulcerative colitis and high dose probiotics, VSL3. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, the next day, what do I have? <laughs> you see, patient. <laughs> a patient with ulcerative colitis. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do I get a hold of him? That's because amazing. I know we talked about this, but but I have to give him eight packets of VSL3 a day. Oh my God, for 12 weeks. I'm a little bit afraid to do that. Let me see if he'll talk to me. Yeah. Right. And then the next day I have a patient with Crohn's. I'm like, Ooh, can I use it on Crohn's? Yeah. yeah. So it, it was like, it was perfect. And I started implementing. I find that many of the clinicians nowadays, they're there. They want to be, get educated. They're fed up. Many of them are burned out. They want to stay in medicine perhaps, but they want to practice a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but they're afraid mm-hmm. also to implement. And they're not quite sure how to do it. That's the other thing. They may have all the knowledge, but they don't know how. And I feel that that's key. And that's probably where I can be most effective because I've done this in group. I've done this by myself. I mean, I've been everything. I've been the nutritionist. I've been, except the receptionist. I've always sort of had a receptionist. But other than that, you know, I've had to be it. And, And sometimes when I was taking doing work, pro bono work for my patients in the nonprofit arena, I was a receptionist too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like I have that kind of background. I can kind of walk them through it because I've been there. I know what it's like. And really, there's power in numbers, and there's always people we can call. Well, how do they find you? How, do, they, how, do, they, they, how do they connect with you? How do, mm-hmm. how do clinicians out there Oh, they can go to my you? website. Okay. So it's drtrendaldi.com. That's probably the easiest way. They can email me. It's info at drtrindade.com. They can also find that on my website. Um, Because it, I I feel like, to me, that's the saddest part, Mm. right? Is when someone has already sort of changed their way, their mindset, and they've learned the information, but they don't know how to implement it, or they're afraid to. Sure. We're changing that. We're changing that. Absolutely. And we can't thank you enough, yeah. Philomena, as always, because we love you. We love you dearly. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, before we let you go, we know you have patients to see. But yeah, before, so she's the real deal. She's got a patient. In I like know. She actually has minute, yeah. only minutes. Before we let you go, I have one last question that I'm going to kick to Michael, and it's called the fireball. Oh, this is and our I'm fireball sure you've done question. this before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get ready. Okay, I happen to know, Dr. Tendati, that uh, you actually kind of like dancing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh my God, I love it. <laughs> so my fireball question for you is, what is the, the most joyous dance? Or what, what's the dance that you would go to that is the most fun for you? Oh, my gosh. I like it all. So I like this uh, traditional dance from the Acers that's a little bit like salsa. Okay. Uh, but you dance it with a partner. Uh, that's probably my, one of my favorites. But I like it all. You know, more, Even line dancing. Uh, I know. Remember, we were even line dancing. Although I'm not as good minute. at it, but yes, I remember you and I, I were in Nashville. Make my own step. You and I were in Nashville, and you're like, "Patty, come on, we're going line dancing." And I totally thought you were kidding, and you were a thousand percent serious. And so, Phil, I was like, "Come on, Patty, we're gonna go get some hats." And I'm like, "What?" <laughs> 
was so great. Oh, you're so sweet. Oh my gosh, you guys, you gotta have fun. If you work this hard, you have totally. to have fun. You have to feed your soul. Great. Well, we love you dearly, Dr. Phil Menachandadi. Oh, thank you, you so much for for being on the show. With yeah, you. and let that that rooster in the background know I that if I'm it. coming out to the Azores, that might be on the dinner table. I heard the rooster too. <laughs> That will do. <laughs> oh, oh, God, you guys are too much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks, always, Phil and always. Such a pleasure. Take care. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. We keep saying we're going to the Azores to see Philomena, and we don't do it. Why don't we do this, Michael? Probably because it's going to the Azores. What's is... wrong with that? That would be awesome. We should no, it would go. be awesome. It's just oh. a trip. I mean, that's <laughs> a big trip. I don't even know how you get there. Do you take a boat? <laughs> I assume. I think they have planes. I guess. Yeah. But uh, so you mean do you fly in? It's, it's not like going to London Heathrow. I I imagine you go to London Heathrow and then you take like what seven different planes to get to the Azores. Where is it? Is it in the Bermuda Triangle? I'm thinking in my head. Is there an airport at the Azores, or would you have to go to like Portugal and like take a boat? This is something we need to figure out the logistics of. I just picture it being so remote that like you probably have to hitch a ride on like a fishing vessel. <laughs> you know. I don't know, but whenever we talk to her, I'm just immediately in a better mood than oh, I was yeah. before. Yeah, absolutely. And and not only that, I mean, she's incredible. She's got an amazing energy. Uh, she's also crazy informative. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, her breadth of understanding of various uh, functional medicine topics is just, it's really impressive. And I, I love how she's constantly refining what she's doing and, you know, her expertise. It's uh, It's just very inspiring. Next time on The Lab Report, we're not doing honey. Thank God. You keep promising it, never delivering it. Just stop promising Our honey promising person's it. in Alaska. I mean, yeah. what, what are we supposed to do? We'll wait. We'll do it the next time after that. You've yeah. been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So um, I got something here that yeah. I recorded. So it turns out that uh, in order to record an interview, yeah. it's important to hit the record button first. Details. These are details, Michael. Yep, already. Let me just got to hit record. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> do, you have, do you have all the tracks? Do you have all the tracks? No, <laughs> Just turn it off and turn it back on. Plug it in. <laughs> oh my God, you guys are funny. <laughs> you should include that piece. <laughs> That's, that's how we do it at the lab report. It's so it's just so pros. classic. Yeah. Professional. <laughs> yeah. Uh.